Um, this morning's speaker, uh, it was actually the second, third time he has preached at our church, if I'm counting correctly. Uh, a few years ago, we had him speak at one of our, our missions conferences, and uh, he is a uh, here locally, and uh, he works with Interact, and they were, he and his family were on the mission field. They had to come back home because of family medical reasons, but he still works with Interact, travels all over. Uh, he's been to Russia this year and Canada. Did you run a race in Russia? Am I, yeah, he, you, we'll have to ask him about that. He uh, actually ran a race through Moscow, right? Through, okay, it, Siberia, huh. Yeah, if I were in Siberia, I'd run too, probably. Yeah, get out of there. Um, so anyway, he just travels all over. He works with Interact, encouraging uh, other missionaries and things like that. Um, he spoke at, as I said, at one of our other missions conferences, and I was talking with the missions committee. They planned this time for right after Mission Connect here, hoping that some of our missionaries might be participating in that, and then they can come and be a part of this. But none of our, our like, overseas missionaries were here. And so they were kind of scrambling and said, why don't you ask Thomas again? And uh, Thomas and I kind of kept in touch uh, after he spoke here last time. They family came to, right after that, he came to one of our, um, our harvest parties out here. And he and I were talking and, and uh, kind of hit it off. And so we went to, went to lunch and a few weeks after that. He took me to Mississippi Delta down in Portland and introduced me to uh, chicken and waffles. And so I'm forever grateful. I've been back several times. <laughs> Since then, and, uh, and then I had him fill in for me. I think it was during one of the couple's retreat. I know I wasn't here, and he uh, preached here while I was gone. And, uh, and then he and I were just recently getting together again, touching base, and, uh, and the missions committee was looking for somebody. I said, why don't you ask Thomas? And he is at this point three times, doesn't make you a visiting preacher, makes you a friend. And uh, I really have gotten to know him a little bit, and he's been an encouragement to me, and I hope I have been to him, and uh, it's just been a lot of fun. So I'm excited about him bringing the word this morning. He's also an elder to his, his church, but more importantly, he's a husband and, and father. And so, Thomas, why don't you come up here and bring us the word this morning? Thank you, Dave, for that very gracious introduction. Uh, is that the... Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, about four years ago... I was at my office at Interact over in Boring, and I got a call. Someone connected the line to me, and it was Russ Ragsdale. And Russ said, you know, we, we, were, we try to have foreign missionaries here, but we couldn't find any, anybody to come. <laughs> we just need anybody. <laughs> anybody who can come, a warm body who can say something about mission work. So they scraped around the bottom of the barrel and they found me. No, I, in all, all uh, seriousness, I've enjoyed getting to, to know Russ and, and several of you, getting to spend time with Dave. Uh, I want to bring greetings from our church, Gresham Bible Church in Gresham. And we meet on Sunday mornings at McCarty Middle School. The church turns 10 years old this year. It was a church plant of Cornerstone, which was a church plant of Good Shepherd. So everything goes back to that big, gigantic mothership over there, uh, Good Shepherd Church. But... Uh, God has really blessed us, a growing church, uh, a church that's uh, really diverse, and we're thankful for what God's doing and has given us the opportunity to serve there. So today, Missions Sunday, I figured I would do something just really out of the ordinary, and that's preach from the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, If you've been to any missions conference anywhere, you've probably heard this preached on at least a thousand, and like my grandmother said, well, you've heard this story, you're going to, a thousand times, you're going to hear it a thousand and one. I'm going to tell you once again. But uh, today, as we look at this passage, uh, I I feel like sometimes it's easy to go into a missions conference and say, well, since everybody talks about the Great Commission and missions conferences, I'm going to find some kind of weird, unique, off-the-charts passage and tie that into missions. And that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. It's kind of like the Christmas passage, kind of like Luke 2 is. We read that at Christmas times. I want to say maybe if we have Missions Sunday, this is the passage we read. Because it is the culmination of God's purposes in the world, that commission from Jesus to his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 28, looking at the Great Commission. But before we get there today, we're going to take the zoom lens. Any of you photographers in here know what I'm talking about. We're going to to zoom out. And we're going to see the big picture because there's lots of stuff that took place before that, and there's lots of stuff that takes place after that. And we want to get that context today. For a number of years, I have had a book idea 
that I wanted to write. And it's called Salt and Light and Horse Manure. <laughs> Can I say that, Dave? Okay, good. Trying to be appropriate. Now, why do I say that? Okay, obviously Jesus tells us in his Sermon on the Mount, we are to be the salt and light of the earth. I don't know if you're anything like me in your life of following Christ, but you've likely had a time or multiple times where you feel like you have failed our Savior wretchedly, that you have dropped the ball, that instead of being in the world salt and light, I feel like I've been horse manure at times. I say that a little bit funny, but a little bit serious. And I'll give you an example. It was about our third or fourth year in Russia. I can't remember exactly. And I was with our family down in the St. Petersburg metro. It's an underground subway system. During the rush hour, it gets very busy. People are kind of moving around, shoving into each other. It's hard enough to navigate when you can walk, and when you're pushing a wheelchair, it becomes even more complicated. So here we are. I'm with my family. My wife has got our little daughter, Nadia, who was one at the time, strapped in like a baby carrier. I'm pushing Isaiah. We're trying to navigate through this. And a man who is obviously drunk comes and trips over Isaiah. And so I kind of firmly but respectfully say, please be careful. Well, he turned on me. Not physically at that moment, but he turned on me and started yelling at me. This was all in Russian. It was very entertaining. That, who are you to tell me to be careful? You be careful. And so I upped the ante a little bit. <laughs> Speaking Russian, in Russian there's a, a form that is polite, uh, like the formal version of you, and there's the informal. And with a stranger, you don't use the informal. So I wasn't using profanity or anything. It was like, okay, I'm going to move to the informal to show this guy that I don't respect him. So I moved to the informal. He did not like that one bit. He began yelling at me, and, and soon he, he realized, you're a foreigner. Wait a minute, I can hear your accent. So he says, you foreigner, this is my city, you get out of here. And I say something to the effect of, you're, you're a you're an old drunk who, who doesn't respect poor crippled children. And we were just, I mean, we were in the metro yelling at each other. Here I am, this American, screaming at him in my, you know, accented Russian. He's yelling back at me, and we began to draw the attention of the crowd around us. People were looking. They were taking our side. We have a child in a wheelchair, so they were, they were kind to us, but uh, he was ready to fight me. And, and they kind of pulled him away, and they pulled, you know, I, he didn't have to pull me away. I wasn't trying to attack him, but... I, I, was, I was shaking, I was steaming, it, it, you know, cooled off, I got on the train, we went back, and I was mad, I mean, it's like, here's this drunk guy trying to, you know, hurt my son, and, and all these parental fatherly instincts were just welling up within me, but then as my temper began to cool, I began to get convicted, and I began to think, Okay, yeah, I, I want to defend my family. I want to care for them uh, in every situation. But I, instead of being salt and light, here I was on my mission field. Here I was in this foreign country, this place where we were sending out prayer letters to people, telling them we were ministering here. We're doing mission work over here. And instead of being salt and light, I was acting like horse manure in this situation. Instead of being the fragrance of Christ, I was being a stench. Now... You might, you may or may not be able to relate to that. I don't know. In your context, maybe some situation in your life. But if you're here as a believer today, I think we all know, if you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, we know that we should be spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. We know that we should be missionaries, either at home or abroad, but we wrestle with doubts and fears and even sins that keep us from engaging in that task as passionately as we would like. And that makes us very less effective in our ministry and in our work. So today's passage is more about the encouragement of why we can, with confidence, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Rather than a potential guilt trip of why you should be doing this and you're not doing this and you all should be ashamed of yourself, give lots of money. It's not what I'm trying to get at. I want this to be the encouragement to all of us here today that whatever mission field you've been placed on, that you would have just, just life injected into that to know that despite our fears and failures and persecutions that we might face, despite our inadequacies and the weaknesses that we might feel, that we being called to go and make disciples of all nations, that we have a blessed hope in all of that, to be strengthened in that calling. Let's read today's passage. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. We will reference other parts of this chapter and kind of go back, but I want to just read those those four verses there. Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you so much for the blessing of being here with these saints at Hillsborough First Baptist today. I thank you that in your providence that you have crossed our paths, that you have allowed us to be blessed by one another's ministries and encouraged in the love of Christ. We pray, Lord, this day that we would be encouraged by your word that you have brought us. Pray that you would guide my tongue and let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Thank you, Father, for this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you the big idea of today's sermon, just in a statement. The big idea is that Christ commands us to make disciples of all nations. And we may do so with confidence, knowing that even when faced with persecution, rejection, and our own fears and failures, that Jesus Christ has all authority and that he is always present with us. So what I want to do here is show you this uh, diagram of how it's going to look. Is it up? There we go. Uh, Normally we see this kind of outline of the Great Commission. Go, make disciples, make disciples, baptize, teach, these four parts. We're going to zoom out a little bit. The zooming out part takes us to this, these two components that surround this Great Commission, these four imperatives, to go, to make, to baptize, and to teach. And that is the authority of Jesus surrounding on one side and the presence of Jesus surrounding on the other side. These are the bookends that hold up the Great Commission, and they are rich with meaning and significance. And if we miss these two bookends, the books can topple over. If we're left only with these four imperatives and we don't realize the bookends on the Great Commission, then it becomes almost a guilt trip worship thing, an obligation. You should be going. You should be making disciples. You should be baptizing. You should be teaching. If you're not doing this, you're a bad person. We're going to get there, but we're going to zoom out first and see these two bookends. So first of all, verse 18, Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is a massive statement that if we don't say that with the Great Commission, we're going to to miss the power behind the Great Commission. All throughout the book of Matthew, we're just going to give a little summary, we're going to skim over the book here in just a minute, but all throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew is making the case and showing by his gospel writing, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, 
an heir to the throne of David and the one about whom the prophets spoke. Matthew is making this case all the way throughout. So it begins in Matthew chapter 1 with the genealogy. Let's turn there real quick. Flip your Bible if you want. Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy. So we, we, we don't often, where well, am I going to read all this because I don't want to pronounce all these names. The genealogies may not be fun to read, but they are absolutely critical to Scripture. In the genealogy that Matthew has here, he is, he is laying out the physical line of David that leads up to Jesus, showing that he is the physical heir to the throne of David. And then it comes to Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, after we scan through all those names. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So Jesus is in the physical line of David, heir to the throne. And then we come to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. Again, Jesus' authority, Jesus' power, his, heir, his, uh, his authority as the Messiah is proclaimed. He gives the Sermon on the Mount, and it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who has had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus was authoritative. He was the heir to the throne of David, and he is declared and proven to be, again and again in the Gospel of Matthew, the Son of God, the Messiah. And we can just look at a few, uh, a few little clips here from the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Jesus shows his authority over Satan. He is tempted by Satan and with authority rebukes Satan. Chapter 5, Jesus has authority over the winds and the waves. He silences them. Chapter 9, he calls Matthew to be a disciple and commands him, follow me. With authority, he goes and finds his disciples saying to them, follow me, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Chapter 12, he shows his authority over the demonic powers. Chapter 14, he authoritatively cures sickness. Chapter 20, he has authority over future events. But by far, friends, all of this comes to a head at the most poignant display of Jesus' authority, his resurrection from the dead. Some could claim that he was a magician, a trickster. He does these things by the ruler of demons. He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. But then, in an ultimate display of authority, he shows that he has authority over the grave. The grave has no authority over Jesus. And friends, it's in this context that we come to verse 18 of Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Friends, this is, this is the tidal wave of that great commission. All of this force that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, all authority has been given to him, then we sit on that wave that is pushing us along. We have authority behind us, the authority of Jesus surrounding us on every side as we go forth with this great commission. Just think about that for a minute. When someone commands you to do something, you're going to respect them and respect that command based upon your view of that person. If Richard Sherman wants to give you football lessons and one of the Seahawks players or something like that, I'm trying to think of a good example in that respect, you would not want to take math lessons from me. There are certain things that if I told you to do, you would be a little suspicious because they're not my specialty. But when someone comes along who has the knowledge, the, 
the power to communicate the idea to you, to tell you with authority what to do, there becomes this respect. And here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who displayed his authority time and time again before his disciples, healing diseases, casting out demons, teaching with authority, rebuking the Pharisees, being crucified, but rising again from the dead, conquering the dead. So this is the context in which he gives this command. He says, I have all authority. It's been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then at the end of the Great Commission, there's another statement that takes place. Don't miss it. Verse 20, the last sentence. Behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus gives his disciples the great commission, go, make disciples, baptize, teach. Then he says, I'm with you. I'm with you always to the end of the age. The one who has authority doesn't just say, go out there and do it, and if you have any problems, let me know. He says, I'm going to go with you in this. So you're standing on my authority. You have the force of the kingdom of heaven behind you. And I'm not just pushing you out the door. I'm going with you. Go with me to, uh, you can either go there or just look on the screen, whichever one you prefer. But Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And we see where this presence of Jesus comes in. And while they were uh, while staying with them, Jesus that is, he ordered his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, "You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now." So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth." So how is Jesus going to be with his disciples? He is going to send them the Holy Spirit. And when he does, then they will become witnesses. Geographically, in Jerusalem, in the city, in Judea, the region, in Samaria, a little bit further away, to all the ends of the earth. This authority of Jesus, and this presence of Jesus is going to be with his disciples that they would start there in Jerusalem and the gospel would spread to the ends of the earth. Now, friends, think about this for just a moment. I had never really thought about this until I I heard uh, another pastor talking about this, and I'm going to quote him here in a minute. Each of us sitting in here now who calls upon the name of Christ and follows Jesus, who is a believer, you're a testament to the fulfillment of that word in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. What I mean by that is First Baptist Hillsborough is here today because Christ gave that commission to this ragtag band of disciples gave them his presence by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they told someone who told someone who told someone, and over the course of 2,000 years, that genealogy has led to someone telling me, someone telling you. You can trace your spiritual lineage, as it were, your knowledge of the, the glorious work of Christ, back to this upper room in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Derek Thomas, a pastor that I 
talked about just a minute ago. He says, this is your history. These are your roots. This is your family tree. And it begins here in this pitiful sight of these forlorn, confused, and fearful disciples. These are men who denied Christ. These are men like Peter who pulled out a sword and started chopping off ears when they came for Jesus. They all ran. They fled, denied him. These are men who would argue about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who was going to sit at Jesus' right hand, who was going to sit at his left hand. These were sinful fallen men who had been saved by grace, but weak and frail in the flesh, prone to wonder, prone to fail, fearful. Can any of us identify with that? We, we sometimes think that to be a missionary, you're, you're standing on some kind of hilltop with a sword in your hand saying, we're going to go forth and we're just going to conquer the nations for Jesus. And we think, well, I don't have that kind of faith, so I'm just going to sit at home and, you know, just hope everything goes well. Friends, <laughs> I have never met a missionary that hasn't at some point in their ministry, to some degree or another, <clears throat> sometimes quite severely, face depression, discouragement, frustration, have spent nights weeping. Missionaries are not superheroes, please. (laughs) They are called by God and blessed and equipped with the grace to go, but friends, we're all in this together. We all struggle against the flesh. We all wrestle with our weakness. But we do this in the authority of Christ, with his presence with us. He is carrying us on this great commission. He goes with us. So in the context of all that, we come to the great commission. Jesus' authority surrounding us, Jesus' presence surrounding us. And we have these four imperatives to go, to make disciples, excuse me, to baptize, and to teach. Let's break each one of these apart just a little bit. As followers of Christ, we are called to go. We are sent out. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, again, talks about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. There is a movement that takes place beginning at one geographical location and moves out to the ends of the earth. Now, every now and then, I I have this question, someone asks it, And it's a totally well-meaning question. Why do we send missionaries overseas when there's so much to do here? Trust me, folks. Portland, it's a mission field, is it not? Psalm 67, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The psalmist there talks about Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the nations, let all the peoples praise you. And I love that passage. That's a whole different missions uh, sermon there. But the mission field, let me me give you a quick definition of the mission field. As the psalmist psalmist says, let the nations praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. A mission field is anywhere where true, heartfelt praise of God is not taking place. And that could be the the heart that is sitting right next to you on the TriMet bus or the the MAX. So, yes, the world is our mission field. But there are places to which we are called. Jesus calls us and commands us to go to the ends of the earth. So some will go short distances. Some will go to their neighbor next door, their co-worker in the cubicle over, the person that works next to them in the factory. But some might go a little further, perhaps to Seattle, perhaps down to San Francisco. Some might go even a bit further. Some might go to Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago, the streets of the inner city where people are poor and needy and need the gospel of Christ. And some will go to Bolivia, and some will go to Indonesia, some will go to Hungary and China and Russia. 
we have this command to be involved with the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Yes, we could stay and focus on the needs of Portland for the rest of our lives and the rest of our children's lives until the return of Christ. But who is going to go tell the peoples, the tribes that have not yet heard of Christ? Because if every church that's out there in the world right now stopped and said, we got enough problems here at home, let's focus on these, who's going to go tell the, the Buryat and the Karahumara and the Mazateco de Tenango? Who's going to go tell these different people groups around the world that either haven't heard of Christ or haven't truly heard him proclaimed? We all are going to have different callings in our mission work. Some will be here, some will be there. But the church is called to be involved in that broad spectrum of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. As Jesus sends them out in chapter 10 of Matthew, he sent out his disciples two by two. He tells them a couple of things. Excuse me. He says, uh, they will be persecuted, Matthew chapter 10. Let's go there real quick. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Jesus warns his disciples that as I send you out, you are going to be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one that perseveres to the end will be saved. So this sending out that takes place, this going, involves persecution. And then he says in Matthew chapter 10, uh, excuse me, Matthew 10, verses 28 through 30, he says, as I'm sending you out, there's going to be this persecution. He says, and do not fear those who, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. In going, you may be persecuted. In going, you may have people that hate you. Thank you, Dave. Okay. Can I quote you in my next prayer letter? Dave Fields. Dave Fields, I beat your wife. <clears throat> Did that make it on the recording? Okay. Anybody pulling up Hillsborough's website? What's going on at that church? Oh, boy. (laughs) You will be persecuted, but don't fear. Don't be afraid. Why? Why don't be afraid? I love this. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So what Jesus is saying, when you go out, don't worry. The worst thing they can do is kill you. But what confidence we have in that. Okay, I I have no death wish. I I desperately don't want to just be killed. I I have this desire to live for Christ and to die as gain. But I feel like God still has a lot of purposes left for me, so I want to stick around. But there is an amazing confidence in that, that what is the worst thing that can happen? I can die. I can be killed. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Now, I'm not saying that as if I wouldn't be fearful. I'm not saying that if someone pulled a knife on me, I would try to defend myself. What I'm saying is, though, the worst thing that can happen is this body would perish and my soul would be with the Lord. When we go forth into this world, whatever the mission field might be, we have that confidence that Christ is with us, with his authority, and that we don't really have anything to fear. 
The message will not be popular, as Jesus tells his disciples in verse 34. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. The message of the gospel, calling people to repent of sin and believe in Jesus, is not a popular one. God moves in hearts sovereignly, and people come to know Christ. They see their need of Him. They trust in Him and believe in Him. But there are some people who will hate the message because it is not a popular message. It is a message of self-denial. It is a message that says, you are not sufficient in and of yourself. You need a Savior. The church welcomes all to come in, but equally calls upon all to repent. And he also says there will be a great reward in your faithfulness. He tells them again, he says, that the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. There is great reward in going out. So we are called to go. We are called to make disciples of all nations. As we go out, what are we called to do? Make disciples, not just converts. And that's very important. The mission of the church is not about checking off how many names of people prayed to receive Christ. We can rejoice if there are numbers and multitudes of people praying to receive Christ. But what should bring us greater joy is when we see those people coming into the church and to begin, begin to follow and be conformed to the image of Christ. That should bring us greater rejoicing. We're not about ticking off names and, and writing down numbers. That is not our goal. It is more than just getting people to pray a sinner's prayer. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And who are we supposed to go out to? All nations. Throughout the Gospels and in the first chapter of Acts, it's clear that Jesus... Uh, Jesus' disciples did not fully understand that Jesus had come for all peoples. They did not fully understand, and that's evident by in Acts chapter 1 there, where they said, now when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But Israel, one thing that they missed, I believe, from all the way from the beginning to now, is God's purposes to ingraft, to bring in the nations. I love that passage from Revelation chapter 7. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This was not an afterthought. This was not something that God thought of later and said, you know what, Israel's not really working out. I'm going to see what these other nations are doing and see if they want the gospel also. God's purposes were from the very beginning were to bring in all the nations. And it goes back to what? Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. God comes to Abraham, makes his covenant with him. He says, I will make a great nation out of you, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I am beginning my covenant work with you, Abraham, and from you are going to, going to come the people of God, the tribes of Israel, and from Israel is going to come forth the Messiah, upon whom all nations will call, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Abraham, in you and in your wife Sarah, will be the seed of the Messiah. We see it in uh, 1 Kings Chapter 1, excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 42 and 43. Solomon gives this prayer at the temple. He says, For the foreigner shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this house. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Solomon's prayer, that the nations of the earth would know the true and living God. Isaiah 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Let me emphasize here. 
that most, if not all of us here today who know Christ, are here because of the promises of the gospel that would be proclaimed to all nations. I'm not of Jewish heritage. I have no Hebrew in me that I know of. I am a Gentile by birth. But because of that promise, that blessed hope that the gospel would go out to all nations, the gospel has come to me and has changed my life. We are called to baptize. Go make disciples, baptize. When people from every nation, tribe, and tongue come to believe in Christ, then they are to publicly identify with him in baptism as a testimony of their faith. We know the verse, many of us, from Romans 6, verse 4, giving us that picture. We are buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. We identify with Christ in his baptism, in in baptism with his death, burial, and resurrection. But also, don't miss the significance of the baptism according to the Trinitarian formula, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to be careful not to overthink this, but it matches up so well with the very great commission that Jesus has given because he says, all authority has been given to me. Who has it been given by? The Father. Now, without getting into all the specifics of Trinitarian theology and all that, yes, we believe the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, all eternal, all equal in power and glory, but there was this, mute, this submission that took place within the Trinity. Jesus Christ, as God the Son, submitted to God the Father. And it says in Scripture that the authority that Jesus had was given to him by the Father. That doesn't make him less important. It's just the way the relationship worked. And so when we're baptized in the Trinitarian name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, being baptized into the name of the Father, we see that authority reflected that was given to Jesus. And being baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, we see that presence that Jesus has with us. The importance of that in identifying as being followers of Christ, being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what is the last thing we are commanded to do? Excuse me, I jumped the gun. It says, we are to teach them. We are to teach them what? We are to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Now, what is he commanded? Well, in terms of the Bible, everything. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which, of these is, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and, greatest command. this is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Friends, this is our mission. We are, we are called to go, to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. Now, that doesn't mean as we're discipling people and teaching them to obey that we say, now, if you don't get it all right, you're not in Christ. It is teaching them to pursue passionately Christ, to be a passionate follower of Jesus. Friends, I fail constantly, every day. But my desire is to follow Jesus Christ. This is our mission, and this is our command. To go make disciples, baptize, and to teach. It is daunting. It's a massive undertaking, and it can be overwhelming, but we do not do it in our own strength. Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, 18, he said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I know that sometimes, friends, we feel like we're storming the gates of hell with a water pistol. It's a daunting task. But with the authority and presence of Jesus, we have a bazooka and a, and a nuclear missile. We're, we're attacking the gates of hell with tanks and massive armaments. The authority of God, the presence of Christ with us as we go about this task. This ragtag band of disciples, beginning in a little upper room in Jerusalem, has resulted in a world in which roughly 2 billion people have heard and to some degree profess Christ. Again, of course, we don't know if everyone is truly converted, but we say that. There is about 2 billion people that would claim to be Christian. 12 fishermen, weak men, not all fishermen, but 12 weak, frail, failing, sinful men has impacted the entire world not because of who they are, but because of who Christ is. Now, I want to share a, a story briefly. Christy, you might want to get a tissue out. I don't know if this is going to make you cry or not. Enjoyed getting to hear Johnny Erickson Tata uh, at Mission Connection this weekend. If you don't know about her ministry, she was paralyzed as an older teenager, uh, was depressed. She became a quadriplegic. Christ changed her life, and she's had an extremely impactful ministry around the world uh, to people with special needs and disabilities. As you can see, our son is in a wheelchair, so the issue of disability is very heavy on our hearts in many ways. We uh, very much are interested in helping and serving families that are also impacted by that. I was talking with someone just the other day about the significance of uh, Johnny Erickson, uh, Erickson taught us talking about the significance of our weakness and seeing our weakness displayed for the sake of the gospel. My son Isaiah is in a wheelchair, can't walk. He's a paraplegic, born with spina bifida. He is mentally delayed. At 11 years old, he has the capacity of about a three-year-old. But an extremely fun, <laughs> an extremely happy, engaging child. When we were still living in Russia... Uh, when we would want to be encouraged by some sermons, we would pull up some various English-speaking preachers and listen to those, because even though we understood the Russian language and enjoyed church, you still like to hear things in your own language. So uh, we would pull up sermons of John Piper, and we would have him on our computer playing, and he would just kind of sit there and just watch the whole thing. You know, here's this little, you know, four or five-year-old boy sitting there watching sermons by John Piper. So when the new iPad came out, what was it, 2010, uh, we got an iPad, because I'm a techie gadget guy. And I loaded some Piper sermons on there, and after a while, I would notice that Isaiah would like to look at the iPad. And so I would let him hold it, and he was actually really good with it. So he would start pulling up sermons and watching sermons. Here's a little five-year-old boy with an iPad just watching sermons. I'm thinking, this is cool, you know? I got this. You never know what God's going to do. So God in his providence led us back to the United States because of his health needs and led us up to Portland, Oregon. And we began to see some amazing things happen because as he's gotten older and had to have more procedures done at Shriners Hospital and Dornbecker Hospital, uh, we find ourselves in recovery rooms and staying in the hospital for two, three, four, five, six, sometimes seven days. And he takes his iPad with him. Now, he listens to music, and he watches Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood and all that kind of stuff, so it's not super spiritual here, but <laughs> he watches a lot of Piper sermons. And you should see the look on the nurses and the doctors' faces and the aides when they come in, and there's this kid there watching a preacher on, on his iPad. They, they usually don't expect that. It kind of takes them by storm. But time and time again, we have seen God use that in an amazing way in that Isaiah cannot express clearly to you the gospel. He can't sit here and tell you all about, you need to confess in your heart, and believe, in your, uh, believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You need to repent of your sins. You need to, he, he can't articulate that to you. But he can hold the device in his hand where somebody is articulating that. 
And that's happened before. We, he's been in the room, and he's sitting there watching his sermon. And John Piper, is, if you've ever seen him, he's doing this thing in his sermon, and his arms are in every direction, and he's passionately proclaiming the gospel. And nurses and aides and doctors have walked in as Isaiah is sitting there, and you know the words are coming out of the sermon. Christ wants you to know that you do not have to die in your sin, that you do not have to perish. Some, some very poignant, clear statement is just coming out at that moment. Isaiah is not going to ever stand up here and, and preach to you. But God is using him as an instrument in his weakness to display his strength. And is using him to carry the message of the gospel to the mission field of Dornbecker Children's Hospital and Shriners Hospital. Now, who would think that an 11-year-old paraplegic boy with the mentality of a 3-year-old can be a missionary? That's just one example. Because he is doing it with the authority and the presence of Jesus in his life. And all of you in here today that call upon Christ as your Savior and Lord, that are following him, you have the authority and the presence of Christ behind you. Go and make disciples. Baptize and teach. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word that has just encouraged us today. We thank you for the fact that you have given us these commands, but you have not sent us out alone. You have undergirded us with this forceful truth that Christ's authority is with us and behind us, and that your presence surrounds us, that we are safe and secure in your arms eternally, though this body might perish and though persecution might come across us. Father, I want to pray right now for each and every follower of you in this room that calls you and knows you that you would help them to discern the mission field that they have been given. If they are called to go 1,000, 5,000 miles away, equip them and send them. If they are called to go 20 feet over to their next-door neighbor, equip them and send them to do that. We thank you for the work of the gospel that has persevered for 2,000 years, that has wrought the change in our lives. And I pray that if you tarry longer, many, many years, decades, centuries, I don't know, that there will be a church somewhere planted, thriving, because one of us told someone, and you worked in and through that to save a soul. We praise you, God, for who you are, for loving us, saving us, and sending us. In Jesus' name, amen.